2: And enjoy the show. <laughs>
4: Come one, come all to our matinee of madness, and partake in this theatre of the mind. Welcome to the Simply Scary Podcast, Season 1, Episode 3. I'm your Master of Ceremonies, G.M. Danielson. For this episode, we'll be hearing from three finalists for the Chilling Tales for Dark Knight Evil Idol competition. We've listened to hundreds of performances in our hunt for the best, and now we have to find the very best from an elite selection. I'm sure you'll realize what a daunting task we all have ahead of us after you listen to these three tales. A quick reminder to be sure to stop by the Chilling Tales for Dark Knights YouTube channel this Halloween for the sudden death round. But before we get things started, we have a quick word about what is to come, and then we will begin.
3: Hello, everybody. This is producer Jesse Cornad with a message for you for Halloween. Join us for the Simply Scary Podcast and a special bonus episode, October 31st, where you will hear brand new material on the Simply Scary Podcast. And there's much more where that came from. So join us, October 31st, for a special Halloween bonus episode of the Simply Scary Podcast. Bring
4: your favorite girl, or if you are a zombie, your favorite corpse, for that premiere. With so many people cutting the cord on cable TV, audiences are hungry for something different. We definitely fit that bill. Now, with that message complete, let's kick off the episode with a story about the senses. A young woman who cannot hear feels strange and mysterious sensations as the new neighbors arrive. The neighbors seem nice enough, but an unseen force portends horrible danger, and we find the neighbors may be the least of her worries. Evil Idol contestant Brindlin McNair does double duty as writer and performer of The Humming.
1: The Humming, written and performed by Brindalyn McNair for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and the Evil Idol competition. The first thing you should know about me is that I'm deaf. I've been this way since I was a teenager. The second thing you should know about me is that I've been living in my basement for the past month. I'm terrified of going upstairs because they might see me through the windows and... It all happened about two months ago. I was sitting in my backyard when it started, this humming. I didn't hear it, of course, but I felt it. An intense, rapid vibration tickling the soles of my bare feet as I sat in my backyard drinking a beer and reading a book. The humming started so suddenly that I jumped a little and looked around for the source. Maybe a big truck or some other large vehicle was rumbling nearby. But I saw nothing that seemed to correspond with the hum. I live in a small neighborhood in a small town and large vehicles are not a common sight. I walked to the front of my house and looked at my neighbors. A few people were standing in their driveways and front yards and were looking around seemingly for the source of the strange humming. It was starting to get dark and I knew I couldn't be of much help at detecting the source of the noise so I started to head inside my house when I felt a hand on my shoulder and in spite of myself I jumped a little. I turned to see a handsome man named Clark Walker who had just moved in across the street from me a few weeks ago. I must have looked surprised or startled because he put his hands up as if he were surrendering. Oh, I'm sorry, he said. He didn't know how to sign, but I could read his lips. Clark had a face full of sharp features with a very full mouth. I definitely didn't mind watching his mouth as he talked. I held up a finger, gesturing for him to hang on a second while I fished my phone out of my back pocket. Then I opened up a communication app and began typing. I typed my message in a voice probably robotic and stilted relayed my words. It's okay, I told him. Happens all the time. You're a lot less creepy than Mr. Fripp. I nodded my head toward the house to the immediate right of mine. Harold Fripp was in his late 60s and had a habit of snooping around the trash cans and mailboxes of other people on the street. Well, that's a comfort, he said, Then his face grew a little dark and his usually pleasant mouth drew into a tight frown. "'Any idea what's going on?' he asked. Clark had distracted me from the hum, but as I looked down at my bare feet, I could still feel the vibrations coming up through the ground. I started typing again. "'I don't know what it is,' I said. "'I can feel it, though. "'Is it a very loud noise?' "'When it first started, I did think it was loud,' he said." But the longer it goes on, the less I notice it. Kind of like the noise power lines make. If I don't think about it, I don't even really hear it anymore. Weird, I typed. Not the most profound response, but I really didn't know what else to say. I sort of understood what Clark meant. If I didn't focus on the vibrating, the sensation seemed to fade. But as soon as I started paying attention to it, I was aware of this tickle on the bottom of my feet. That alone was unsettling. Not knowing what the source was or why it was happening was outright disturbing. "'Yeah,' Clark said. "'Anyway, so, yeah. What I really wanted to ask you was if you'd come to my barbecue this weekend.' I tried so hard to play it cool and not smile like a doofus. And I failed miserably. I nodded and signed, thank you. Clark smiled. "'Hey, I know that one.' He signed back, you're welcome.' The humming didn't dissipate over the next week. It never stopped. And I wasn't sure at first, but it seemed like the vibrations were getting more intense. By the time Clark's barbecue rolled around, the entire neighborhood was in an uproar about the mysterious humming. I was sitting by the pool in Clark's backyard watching a group of women chat. They were huddled really close together and seemed to be talking in hushed tones, which made me all the more interested in eavesdropping. I focused in on Myrtle Evans, the leader of the local mommy group. She had just given birth about a month before, and most of her conversations consisted of tips to get her pre-baby body back. But not that day. "'I can't get Joey to settle down,' she said to the two other women huddled around her. "'He wails and fusses all the time. "'I just don't know what to do.' "'You know, I've been having the same problem with Joanna.' said one of the other women. Another new mom, her baby was about six months old. I turned my attention away from the women and stared at the water in the pool. I had seen other women talking about having trouble with fussy babies in the past few days, but I hadn't thought anything of it. Babies were fussy, right? But every baby in our neighborhood, an inconsolably cranky, something just wasn't right. And then I remembered the humming. What if that's what it was? My thoughts were disrupted by a person plopping down next to me. I saw Clark's reflection in the pool and smiled, but my smile was short-lived as I noticed his reflection seemed... off. It was grainy, kind of... pixelated. But that wasn't right. Then I realized it was the water. The water was vibrating so much, it distorted Clark's reflection. I grabbed his arm and pointed at the pool. His gaze followed my outstretched arm and he stared at the water for a bit. Then he looked at me and nodded before standing up and running inside his house. I just sat there staring, wondering what the hell was going on. I stood up, ready to leave, when Clark returned with a glass of water. He set it on the concrete next to the pool and we sat down to look at it. The water started rippling as soon as the glass touched the concrete. I pulled my phone from my pocket and started typing. It's gotten worse. I said before Clark could say anything everyone turned their heads to the front of the house then they started running toward the street Clark stood up and started to go with them but then turned back and held out his hand to help me up I stood up searching his face for some kind of answer about what was happening a woman he said there's a woman screaming he grabbed my hand and we ran to join the others when we got to the front of the house I saw a group of women huddled around a lump in the street The rest of the neighbors stood in Clark's front yard looking horrified. The lump in the street turned out to be a woman and she was screaming and clutching something to her chest. Something small and wrapped in a blanket that was stained with dark splotches. My stomach turned when I realized it was a woman who lived at the end of the street and that she was clutching what used to be her baby. I grabbed Clark's face with both hands and turned him toward me. What happened? I mouthed. He led me away from the crowd toward his front steps, then sat me down and crouched in front of me. She, her baby. He looked like he might be sick. He took a deep breath and composed himself, then began again. Her baby wouldn't stop crying, had been crying all week. So she picked him up and slammed him against the wall in his nursery until he stopped crying. I stared at him horrified. I, I couldn't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. I wish I could say that was the worst thing that happened. The humming did indeed affect babies. Something about their skulls being thinner, so the humming caused them intense pain and discomfort. At least that's what I've gathered from the stuff I found online. The children in the neighborhood were affected next. The humming was getting more intense each day. Two weeks after it started, the kids in the neighborhood turned. They gathered in the cul-de-sac and just stood there. Then they started moving down the street like a pack of animals. I watched them from my window, thinking it was some sort of game, until they got to Mr. Fripp's house. He was lurking in his yard, watching Clark wash his car. He didn't even see the attack coming. The first child reached him and shoved him to the ground. Then, one after another, they descended upon him. They kicked at him and beat him as he lay on the ground, his hands over his head, and they continued their assault until the old man stopped moving. Then they reassembled and began moving down the street again. I saw Clark standing in the middle of the street. He tried to run over to help Mr. Fripp when he saw what the kids were doing, but he was too late. He looked up at me, eyes wide with fear. He started making his way to my house, but the pack of crazed children would have intercepted him before he made it, so he turned and bolted into his house. I watched as he closed the curtains and turned out all the lights, and I followed suit, making sure my doors and windows were locked and that my lights were out. My phone buzzed in my pocket and I pulled it out to see a message from Clark. No matter what happens, stay inside. I don't know what's going on. I felt the tears streaming down my face then, and my vision blurred so much it was hard to type out my response. I'm scared, was all I could manage. Me too, was Clark's response. I went to the kitchen and grabbed the biggest knife I could find and barricaded myself in my bedroom, but I couldn't fall asleep. The next morning, I pulled my curtains aside to see the bodies of all of our elderly neighbors lying in the street. They'd all been beaten to death. I couldn't see the children. I did see Clark peeking from his window, and then my phone buzzed. Stay inside. I can't see the kids. They could be anywhere. I nodded before pulling my curtains closed. And that day, all I did was sit on my couch and sob. That night, I noticed flashing lights outside my window. I pulled myself up from the couch and peeked outside. Some of my adult neighbors were walking around with flashlights and looked like they were shouting, looking for the children. The bodies of our older neighbors were no longer in the street, but the bloodstains from their battered bodies remained. I could feel the tears welling up in my eyes, but before they had a chance to fall, I was distracted by the commotion outside. A handful of adults just dropped to the ground and began writhing, holding their heads in their hands. Some of them vomited. Their mouths were hanging open, and I could tell they were screaming. Then, one by one, in rapid succession, their heads exploded. They just burst in a mess of red and pink and white. I jumped away from my window and put my hand on my mouth, and my chest and my throat began to sting, and I realized I was screaming. And that was how they found me. I stepped back to the window and found myself staring into Clark's face, but it wasn't his face. Not anymore. His eyes were bloodshot and his mouth hung slack, but when his eyes met mine, his expression snapped tight. His mouth creased into a grimace and his eyes narrowed in a look that just radiated hatred. I stumbled backward and that's when I noticed my house was surrounded. The silhouettes of my neighbors filled my windows and it looked like they were trying to beat their way inside. I did the only thing I could think of. I grabbed the block of knives from the kitchen, my phone, and my laptop, and locked myself in my basement. I work, or I worked, from home. And my basement is where I have my office set up. It's nice and cool down here, and there's enough room for the surveillance equipment I use to keep an eye on the house when I'm working. Since I can't hear the doorbell, I have a video monitoring system that lets me see who's at my door. I also have motion-detecting cameras set up in the house in case an intruder breaks in. For the first two weeks I was down here, I wished I didn't have them. My neighbors, my former neighbors, whatever they are now, they roamed through my house. They didn't seem to be searching for me, but they also weren't leaving. Every now and then one of them would drop to the floor and writhe around before his head burst. Today was the first day I didn't see any of them moving around upstairs, inside or outside. I desperately want to go and see what's happening, but I'm terrified. There's no answer when I call 911, and no one has responded to my messages seeking help. I have no idea how widespread this is. I have enough food and water down here to last me a little while longer, but I'm not sure that matters. You see, the humming hasn't stopped. It's only getting stronger. The vibration is so strong it can rattle a bottle of water right off my desk. And I can feel this pressure. It's growing right behind my eyes. And right now, my head is killing me.
4: Hmm. Our hero seems to have learned that a condition which prevented her from experiencing a world of sensation actually protected her from the loss of her sense of self. But when the world goes to hell, do you really want to be the only one aware enough to comprehend it? Food for thought, as we begin our second story for this episode. Death has visited the family of Dr. Thomas Dugan. In search of work to occupy his mind while his family recovers, he takes a job for a client in a place named Blackcroft Hall. Ooh, I like the sound of that. I think I'll say it again. Blackcroft Hall. What a lovely ring it has, full of true terror. Moving forward, after he arrives, he will learn as well... To shudder at the mention of that name. Our evil idol entries are multitasking today, as Christopher Keegan reads his original tome, Blackcroft.
5: My name is Dr. Thomas Dugan, and what you're about to read is my story. It is not a fairy tale to lull children off to sleep or some yarn told by a travelling performer to distract and entertain, with a moral at its end. This story is much darker, for it is a true story, and must be told. I shall begin with my darling and long-suffering wife, Elizabeth. She entertained my love of the medical profession so much that she followed me all over the north of England as I darted from one medical practice to another, constantly uprooting our happy little home in search of another project. Being of a restless nature, I never found anywhere that sufficiently challenged me. Elizabeth insisted that a child would provide the relevant distraction. We prepared thoroughly for our new roles as mother and father. However, what we were not prepared for was the death of our child before he even left the womb. Elizabeth is the strongest person I have ever known, and rather than succumbing to the Great Depression which hung over our heads, she encouraged a change, and urged me to go south to London to seek our fortune and build a new, happy home with a fresh start. That is how I found myself in a gentleman's club at 11pm on a smoggy London September evening, and sat across from me was Sir Robert Teeling... We'd roomed together at university, and whereas I roamed around with barely a penny to my name, Bertie had secured a hefty salary and a knighthood doing something or other for the government. "'My dear Doogie, why don't you consider the private sector?' he exclaimed in his boorish manner. Bertie, there is nothing I would like more. But I've spent the last few years lancing boils and treating cuts and bruises in Yorkshire, I hardly feel my skills are practiced enough for the private sector. Uh, Tell me, what do you know of medicine of the mind? You mean asylums? The treatment of the insane and irrational? Very little, Bertie. Only what I've read in journals. Uh, Why, are there opportunities in that field? There may be, there may be. A a small government-run facility in Kent that I just happen to know needs a skilled doctor... "'The pay is extraordinarily good for a job of this nature, if you like. I could have a word.' "'Bertie!' I said, delighted by this turn of events. "'It sounds perfect. What's the name of the asylum?' "'Blackroft. Blackroft Hall.' "'It's amazing to think how excited I was when I first heard that name. "'I felt that this was my fortune's turning around.' I was so motivated to get started I went home and packed that very night, and two days later I set out for Blackcroft. The heat and smell of Waterloo Station caught in the back of my throat, and the coal smoke swirled and turned the figures in front of me into wispy ghosts passing hither and thither. I quickly found myself a train and located an empty carriage. Happy to be out of the choking station, I slumped in the warm seat and made myself comfortable. Before too long the train pulled out of the station, and not long after that, my chin slumped onto my chest and my eyes closed. I found myself walking through a forest. The dead leaves crunched satisfyingly under my feet, and the branches above my head swayed in a pine-scented breeze. The sound of birds was so pleasing to me I stopped walking just to listen. This forest felt so alive, and yet... There was something not quite right. A feeling in the air, like a storm was coming, like I wasn't quite alone. Suddenly I felt eyes on my back. I started to turn and. Tickets, please! I woke with such a start I almost fell from my seat. "Uh, Tickets, please, sir. I handed my ticket to the conductor, still breathing rather heavily, and my heart racing. "'Arriving at Blackcroft in fifteen minutes,' he said after checking the destination, and left me alone once more. Blackcroft Station was deserted, and I was the only person to leave the train. However, it was very clear where the hall was, for a large, ominous building towered over the trees and across the fields ahead of me. "'A small facility, Bertie?' I thought to myself. "'It looks as if it has five stories.' "'As I got closer, my wonderment grew.' Blackroft Hall looked less like an asylum and more like a manor house or stately home. The turrets of this grand building reached skyward, and the large windows reflected what sun there was into my eyes, but the day grew cold as I saw that every window had been painted black, and a chill ran up my spine. I finally arrived at the large oak door and reached for the brass knocker. As my fingers touched it, I was filled with panic... A sense to run, to flee, leave, and never come back. But my hand was lifting the knocker and letting it fall with a crash that shook the glass in those horrible black windows. As the sound echoed away, I felt as if the whole world was holding its breath. Then the door opened. Dr. Tugan? Uh, Yes, I stammered. My name is Cardell. Please come in. I didn't want to. The last thing I wanted to do was to step foot in this strange and cold place, but I did. I stepped through the door and watched it close behind me with a slam, blocking out the sunlight and plunging me into gloom. After a scratch and a sputter, a match jumped into light, causing shadows to dance crazily around me. Cardell lit a candle and the flame steadied. "'This is not quite what I expected,' I said after a pause. "'Why, what were you expecting?' "'I don't know, a hospital, maybe? "'Somewhere where the windows aren't painted black?' "'Our patients like the dark. "'You will too, eventually?' (laughs) hardly,' I said. "'This man was unnerving me greatly. "'Do you wish to get started immediately, Doctor? "'We can give you some one-on-one time with the patients.' "'He smiled.' and showed a selection of broken yellow teeth, which made his white tunic seem whiter still. One-on-one time. I know nothing about this facility, or its patients, or your method of treating them, and I am expected to start? Start what, for goodness sake? Doctor, you're here to figure out how to treat them. Follow me. Cardell led me up a large staircase, and through a series of winding corridors. It seemed that Blackcroft had indeed been a stately home, but long since gone to ruin. The moth-eaten carpet beneath my feet let out puffs of dust at every step, and the mouldering paintings on the walls followed me with their eyes as I passed. Down another winding corridor and into a large room lit by gas lamps, Around the room was a shocking display of damaged humanity. The pale and emaciated bodies in this room were muttering to themselves, or rocking back and forth, or lying naked on the floor, twitching. The smell that reached my nostrils brought bile to my throat. I had to bring a handkerchief to my nose. Walk where you like,' said Cardell. "'But keep your voice low.' Don't touch them, and don't talk to them. Should they not be in chains, man? I said, barely disguising the panic in my voice. No need. Just don't trigger them, Doctor. Stay calm, and they will too. I began to walk between the human detritus around this room, and saw other members of staff wearing the same white uniform as Cardell, standing around the sides of the room, ...all casually chatting or reading. They paid no attention to me or their so-called patients. I stepped around cautiously, trying to get a sense of what was going on here. My mind raced and I began to feel dizzy. The heat, the smell. I made my way to a far corner of the room and leant against the wall. Far away from anyone. And tried to calm my breathing and clear my head, when, for the second time that day, I felt a gaze on my back. I turned and was met eye to eye with one of the emaciated figures standing a foot from me. His gaze burnt into me, and I backed further into my corner. Hello? I said foolishly. Suddenly a light seemed to ignite in those horrible eyes. It said in a rasping scrape of a voice. No was all I could force from my lips.
4: The abode of the damned The Home of the Cursed
2: Limbo for the possessed.
5: My heart leapt, and I opened my mouth to try and form a word. There was a crunch and a splat as the creature spat in my face. I tasted metal on my lips and in my mouth. I reached up to wipe the sputum from my face and a smear of red came away on my finger. I saw it grinning back at me. The tip of its tongue hanging from a bit of sinew between the red bloodstained teeth spread wide in a grin. The eyes electric and manic. The creature's blood dripped down the corner of my mouth. My stomach heaved. I staggered and vomited. Between the gurgling heaves and gasping screams coming from my mouth I heard more manic laughter. The man had bitten off the tip of his own tongue and spat his blood into my mouth, was laughing. His own blood was running like a flood from his mutilated mouth, his head thrown back in ecstatic mirth, and his laughter rang through me like a bolt of lightning. The orderlies were on him, wrestling him to the ground, and I ran. "'jumping over the clawing fingers of the bodies around me, "'down a dark corridor and another and another, "'down the stairs and through the oak front door "'and into the murky gloom of dusk. "'My heart didn't slow its hammering against the inside of my chest "'until I reached the train station, "'and even then the rising panic followed me onto the train back to London. "'As I sat in the train carriage, "'I tried to make sense of what had happened to me. "'Who was that creature?' And what on earth was Blackcroft Hall? I only knew one man who might have answers. I burst into the office of Bertie Teeling, most likely looking like a madman myself. My waistcoat and overcoat were stained with vomit, my shoes and trousers covered with dust and mud, and my face was drawn and pale. Doogie, what on earth? Bertie, where the hell did you send me? "'You have no idea the horrors I experienced at your godforsaken hall. "'For goodness sake, man, you're raving. Uh, "'Please, take a seat. Tell me what happened.' "'I sat down, and Bertie thrust a sweet sherry into my shaking hand. "'I began to detail my shocking exploits, and his face grew graver and graver the more I spoke. "'Finally, when I'd finished my tale, he stood up and walked slowly to the window of his office.' Doogie, I'm so very sorry. I thought the stories about Blackcroft were merely fear and fantasy. What is that place, Bertie? It is an asylum. However, it is an asylum for those with the unfortunate luck to be possessed by demons or devils. Something that before today I believe to be untrue. Possessed. Robert... "'I am no five-year-old child. "'Those people were damaged, maybe beyond repair, but possessed. (sighs) "'I should go home, and in the morning I shall catch the train north to see Elizabeth. "'You have damaged our friendship, Robert.' "'With that I stormed from his office, trying to ignore his shouts that followed me. "'By this time it was very late, and the London streets were close to deserted.' My tired feet dragged on the flagstones, but it wasn't long before I reached my room. Flopping down onto my bed, it crossed my mind to write a letter to Elizabeth before I leave for Yorkshire in the morning. But before I could think twice about it, my eyes were closed and my head was soft against the pillow. I was walking again through the forest. The fallen blanket of leaves crunched under my feet, however this time there was no birdsong and the dark boughs of the trees above me seemed to choke the air from around them and made me panic for breath. The feeling of eyes on my back once more made the hair on my neck prickle uncomfortably. I began to walk faster and faster and then run and then I snapped and launched into a full-blown sprint of panic. My heart beat so loud I felt it would tear my chest in two my lungs burnt with every breath and my brain was screaming inside my skull finally i whirled around nothing nothing except the oppressive gloom that filled the forest i turned back and my nerves shattered standing less than an inch from my face was the broken creature with the bloody grin and the tip of its mutilated tongue hanging between its teeth Every breath it took showered me in drops of blood and saliva, and when it spoke, a cascade of blood and bile fell from its lips. (sighs) Dr. Dugan, we marked you, now we claim you. I opened my mouth to scream, but the beast slammed its hands to the side of my face and came in to embrace me. It clamped its jaws around my own tongue and bit down hard. I fell to my knees on the forest floor, choking on the warm blood that flowed from my mouth and down the back of my throat.
2: Your life
5: is ours. But we only want one thing and we will let you go. I looked at this being and my eyes seemed to be all the questions it needed. Leaning in close, it whispered, We want your wife. So there we are. That is my story. If you are reading this and you are not Elizabeth, then please share this writing and try to get it to my darling wife. Elizabeth, if you do read this, know that I have loved you dearly, but you should never come to Blackcroft Hall, even if you intend to visit your poor raving husband, cause something else waits for you there, besides, I couldn't talk to you anyway, I have no tongue
4: Would you have the courage to sacrifice yourself for someone else in your life? You never know when you may have the answer to that question, but it may be sooner than you expect, much sooner. While you reflect on my rather dark, foreboding tone, we have a message to help you stay more informed.
3: Hello boys and girls, this is producer of the Simply Scary Podcast, Jesse Cornett again. I hope you're enjoying our episode of Evil Idol Favorites, and what I'd like for you to do as well. After the show, go to simplyscarypodcast.com, and click on the Patrons link at the top of the page, and become a patron of our website at chillingtalesfordarknights.com. You can decide at what level you'd like to give, and that will help continue to fund the productions that we offer you here at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and on the Simply Scary Podcast. And without you, we cannot continue to do what we do. So unlike the cable company, why don't you pay for entertainment that you're going to love? The Simply Scary Podcast and the productions from Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Become a patron today and help us share the scare. Back to you, GM.
4: We have returned. From where? I'm not sure. But that's not really important, especially since we are on the Simply Scary Podcast. And what a nightmare experience we have prepared for you. Randall is a disaffected young man, Who just wanted to get away from home by going for a walk in the city? He has a chance encounter with a beautiful person who is receptive to his responses. She also claims to be from his past. Why then doesn't he remember her? Nicholas Gorov shares his story of Fear of Atlas.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: Randall was a man who was growing tired of a great many things. He was tired of his job, of his tiny apartment, of the depressed little city that the two resided in, as well as his failing car, failing relationships, and the sputtering gasps of his dreams and ambitions. As he sat outside in the back of the small restaurant in which he worked as a cook, he inhaled the rancid smoke of his cheap cigarette and sighed as the cloud escaped his lungs. His eyes meandered along the corners and edges of the rear service entrance he had exited through and the building itself which it led back into. It seemed as though everything from the door and the building before him, up through the contents of his own life, were all in some state of crumbling decay, either metaphorically, or in the case of the restaurant's rear exterior, quite literally. He knew that inside the burners upon the ovens, as well as those upon the grills, were shoddy and distributed flame unevenly due to their age and corrosion. He knew that the coolers were failing and that the produce rotation and the questionable increase in adding mystery soup specials to the menus meant simply that management saw the borderline food products they were selling to be a more economical solution than replacing the broken down equipment. He knew that after work these senses of a breaking down world would continue to pester him. Were he even to receive a call from Julie, a woman he had been dating casually yet growing further apart from, it would undoubtedly result in an awkward conversation about plans they may or may not carry through on, leading to an unsurprising drawlness if they did, and a furthering divide between them if they did not. As for friends, though he could not specifically put his finger on when such began, it seemed increasingly as though he never spoke to any, or that those few we could think of had moved on and away some long time ago, Through and through these feelings that the entire universe was in a slow process of decay dogged him from the moment he woke up to whatever times he finally fell asleep. And though he would from time to time attempt to discuss this sense of entropy that he felt, it seemed quite clear, following multiple discussions with co-workers or strangers at the bar or really anyone who would listen, that he was alone in feeling or observing something it was solely his universe which was falling apart. As he let this sensation linger a moment longer, he stubbed his cigarette on the gritty concrete below, rose from his seat on the ground, and walked back into work, closing the door behind him. No sooner had it latched with him safely inside than did a chunk of concrete break loose from the frame above and fall crashing to the ground. Though his sense of decay in his personal life was certainly a subjective matter, observations about his workplace were facts more solid than the brick, mortar, or concrete which comprised it. The same was true for his home. Stepping around a cracked and crumbling portion of the concrete outer step upon returning home from work, he struggled as he usually did, with the key in front door, neither of which seemed too keen to work with the other to allow him entry. As the stairs within his apartment, in the front stairwell, creaked and groaned as he traversed the two flights upwards to his tiny apartment, he wondered how long it would be until one of his feet finally went through one. The lights flickered as he turned them on, now finally home, and the undeniable yet unidentifiable stench of something foul and rotting once again seemed to have made its way into his boat, either through the aging pipes or perhaps something merely dead and decomposing in either the ceiling or floor below his feet. There was a singular bright spot in the midst of such dilapidation, if one could even call it a bright spot, which he struggled with internally from time to time. As his social life and social circles degraded into nothing, he had taken up drinking alone as something of a hobby. Not of the classic sort, wherein a man with a whiskey bottle stares blankly into space, wondering what had become of his life, Randall had recently discovered that so long as he cut through the right sequence of alleyways, he could walk downtown in relatively short time. Upon arriving, he would set about bar hopping, sipping cheap well drinks, and preparing to enjoy the social messes that would evolve following last call generally good and drunk by the time this would happen, the shouting matches, tearful make sessions, fist fights, and barroom romances which would spill out into the street, provided for Randall a source of short-lived entertainment on most nights. It was, however, on one particular night that his usual route from whiskey bar to tab house to whiskey bar again found itself interrupted by a sight that was unusual in Randall's routine. Walking off of one of the side streets Which led to the main drag He caught nearly immediate sight Of an exceptionally beautiful woman Unlike most others he'd see in town She lacked the destroyed complexion The paleness, her paltry tones And generally trashy demeanor Which nearly every other woman he'd encountered in town Seemed to wear these days Instead Across the street and staring directly at him was a woman of stunning composure and aesthetic, with fine black hair, a healthy and flawless complexion, and lustrous green eyes. She wore a slinky blue dress, which hugged her hips and shoulders and breasts perfectly, outlining a body fit for a Hollywood starlet. He was forced to stop dead in his tracks upon meeting eyes with her from across the boulevard, In what seemed to last both a split second and eternity The two stood looking at one another with Randall's face Awash in stunned surprise at the sight of such a beauty And her expression being one of a knowing playfulness As the moment then passed She turned and walked into the front door of a nightclub He had never bothered to notice before Just as she passed through the door She shot a beckoning look over her shoulder directly at him to which he found himself drawn irresistibly. Making his way across the street, he shot out directly for the door and stepped inside. Within lay a casual yet sophisticated lounge, with fine furnishings and an overall handsome clientele. He was struck by the generally polished and well-kept environment which seemed to almost defy his entire understanding of the world and city he inhabited. Nowhere was there to be found any cracked windows or walls, nor furniture, fixture, or lighting that were showing any signs of wear or decay. To all of his senses, a wholeness of construction and composition was found, with everything from the soft sounds of polite conversation and background lounge jazz to the sense of perfumes, fine meals, and exotic cocktails permeating every corner of. And as though by some spectacular design, at what seemed to Randall to be at the center of it all, there at the bar, unaccompanied, sat his mystery woman. Sipping daintily on a drink of green as resplendent as her eyes, she glanced over to him, over her shoulder, before returning her gaze once again to the glass below. Bewildered and bewitched, Randall made his way to her, and took a seat beside her at the bar um, he began, trying not to stumble too hard on words which simply wouldn't come. It's nice to see you again, Randall, said the woman, still focused upon her drink. He was, to put it mildly, dumbstruck, and he began furiously pouring through his mind, trying to recall the apparently forgotten time he'd met this beauty before him. I know you're struggling to recall who I am, so I suppose I'll introduce myself once again. I am Memory. This time she set her drink down as she spoke and looked Randall dead in the eye. So we know each other? He asked in utter bewilderment. She offered him a sincere and friendly laugh. (laughs) We do. We've actually met a few times. I'm... "'I'm sorry,' he stammered. "'I really can't imagine what would cause me to forget someone like you.' "'You most likely just had a lot on your mind since then. "'Sometimes people can forget things, you know, "'so they can keep enough room in their minds to keep things running smoothly.' "'He was entirely baffled by her answer "'and continued searching through every mental nook and cranny he could find,' in a desperate bid to recall their meeting. Though try as he might, nothing came. I think I might have been a blonde last time, to be honest, she said, again returning to her drink but maintaining eye contact as she did. Her suggestion did nothing to help him recollect, and instead only served to drive him ever so slightly madder for his forgetfulness. He was about to speak then. "'and offer up some paltry apology while then seeking to divert the conversation "'to more friendly and possibly flirtatious places "'when she suddenly asked him a rather strange question. "'Randall, are you familiar with the concept of solipsism?' "'He was again baffled, "'this time at both the sudden pivot in their discussion "'as well as by the vain attempt on his own part "'to recall the meaning of a word he knew he had learned, "'once before at least.' but could not define. Wordlessly he shook his head. It's the idea that in life you can never actually know for certain if anyone else is real, as you only actually have your own experience and perspective to draw upon. She sipped her cocktail again. The thinking being that since I am and will always only ever be me, and you are and will only ever be you, that neither of us will ever be able to be one hundred percent certain that the other is real in the same way that we are. What do you think of that?" He had not been prepared for a philosophical discussion with such a beautiful woman, let alone seemingly any discussion at all. However, thinking on it for a moment, he soon responded as best as he could. Well. No, for my part, that today I got up, went to work, came home, and then came out here. So my day certainly happened. And looking at you now, I can see that you clearly took some time picking out that gorgeous dress and applying your makeup and fixing your hair, so you're at least offering me some evidence that you were existing and doing things before we met each other here, so... "'I'd say that odds are rather good we're both very real, right?' Memory smiled warmly. "'That's the spirit.' She turned quickly to motion to the bartender, whose attention it seemed as though she already had, either by luck or something else. A moment later, as she was once again facing Randall and smiling a smile that simply melted him through and through, the barkeep arrived at their seats and placed two shots of what looked like pale whiskey on the bar." Nodding silently then, he took his leave, and memory picked up the two glasses. Handing one to Randall, she raised her own in something of a toast. "'Drink up. It's West Cork, your favorite.' "'How did you?' he began, but found himself cut off as she motioned for him to follow suit. Raising his own glass, the two toasted and shot their whiskey. It went down incredibly smooth and though he could not recall ever having had that brand of what was clearly Irish whiskey, he found without a doubt or reservation that it was in fact his favorite. His confusion deepened and deepened even more as he watched memory rise from his seat and gesture for him to do the same. He quickly complied, and his beautiful companion then, with a look of genuine happiness and sincerity, took his hands in her own, "'It was very, very good to see you again, Randall. "'It always is.' "'What do you mean it?' "'Again, Randall found his words cut short. "'This time, it was due to memory leaning in and kissing him deeply.' "'He closed his eyes. "'The softness of her lips and the silky smoothness of her skin "'was complemented so fully by her lustrous and somewhat exotic scent.' that all thought left Randall in that moment, which seemed to stretch out endlessly, and then end abruptly all too soon. He had heard and read of kisses which made the earth seem to shake and quiver. However, as memory withdrew, and his eyes began to open. He caught only the briefest glimpse of her face before the lights flickered and went out. Her hands left his and the ground felt as though it literally rumbled as they did. Then suddenly, in the dark, Randall felt an overwhelming sense that he was alone. Before he could speak and call to her in the dark, lights flickered and came on once again. However, now instead of the soft lighting of the jazzy, ritzy lounge he had just been standing in, Randall stood instead beneath the stark and harsh fluorescent lights of an empty and dilapidated concrete room. All sounds of music and conversation were replaced by the industrial buzz of the ceiling-mounted lighting, and periodically the echoing sound of his feet scraping along the concrete floor as he looked all about in absolute shock. For the briefest of moments, Randall was worried that he had gone mad. When the lights themselves begin to flicker once more and go out, this time in sequence from the far end of the room, this worry became a sense of abject terror, which caused him to turn sharply on his heel and bolt for what was now a cracked glass and metal shop door leading back out into the street. With every step he took, the darkness felt closer, and though he could not explain why, the very concept of such creeping darkness filled him with an indescribable sense of dread. He needed to make it out. As his hand fell upon the push bar of the disused shop door, he found it locked and scrambled then to turn the small latch handle. Though he heard the bolt fall away, the door would not budge and the darkness was nearly upon him. From the back of the large empty room, he heard what sounded to him like something massive and heavy collapsing, thunderously, in the dark. His terror deepened then, and as the falling blackness raced closer to him, he threw his shoulder into the door. "'shattering some bits of glass out of it, "'which went spilling into the ground outside. "'Thankfully, though, it proved enough to dislodge the frame "'and allow Randall to escape out into the sidewalk. "'No sooner had he dashed out into the sidewalk, "'throwing closed the now partially broken glass door behind him, "'than did the same rumble and thunder "'which had been heard in the shadows before "'seem to rush up from the back of the room, "'growing louder from behind the door as it did. "'Randall stepped back, Terrified as the sound reached a crescendo, and from the broken bits of window spewed a merciless cloud of dust, as though a bomb had gone off inside. Standing there, afraid to his very core, and now covered in concrete dust, he looked stupefied at the sight which greeted him as the dust slowly cleared. No longer a polished pub exterior as it had been when he walked in, Randall saw instead a darkened and condemned storefront, which looked as though it had been empty and abandoned for years, potentially. Within the storefront windows, which were themselves covered in municipal signage declaring the property private, as well as tape covering vast webs of cracks, he watched as the grey dust that had chased him out swirled about. All about him to either side dumbfounded gawkers and onlookers stared at the terrified, dust-covered man. One spoke up. "'Dude, were you in there?' a young man asked, astonished at the sight of him. Then another spoke as well. "'Are you crazy? Buddy, that place has been condemned and slated for demolition for months now,' said an older, gruffer onlooker with a husky voice. Randall tried to speak, could not find the words. The shock and horror of such an impossible experience as he had just been through had rattled him too deeply to speak. He stumbled back a few steps, alternating his gaze between the abandoned shopfront and the bystanders who looked at him with equal astonishment and confusion. It was upon, though, his third time looking to the others that another sudden horror presented itself. He could not be sure. For he bolted once more as soon as he saw, but upon looking once more to the strangers which surrounded him, their expressions had changed from the ordinary confusions of people unsure of what had happened to the dead and expressionless looks which kept attention trained on him despite no longer having eyes to see. They looked more like dead things then, all gazing from empty eye sockets, their pale faces all dropped. Randall shrieked in terror and stumbled again as he began to run Though they did not give chase, he ran a mad dash down the sidewalk towards a nearby intersection And as his foot fell upon the curb, the stone beneath him came loose and crumbled to dust Sending him spilling into the street head first. Falling to the concrete, he felt his head bash against the hard street surface And picking himself up, felt the warm trickle of blood begin to fall down his face his vision was blurred and his head rang out in pain. Yet the terror stayed with him and he was soon up again and running once more. After another block, he watched as a taxicab rolled by and screaming to the cabby, he waved his arms frantically. By some grace of good luck, the red lights of the cab's brake lights shone out and the car came to a stop. Randall, with every possible ounce of energy within him. Scrambled in through the door into the back seat and quickly slammed and locked it behind him. Glancing over his shoulder, he noticed he was not being pursued. Where to, buddy? The cabby asked in a hoarse voice that croaked at the words more than speaking them. Gasping and out of breath, Randall answered Home, Merrimack Street, 188. 188 Merrimack Street. 188 Merrimack. Off we go! The cabby croaked as the car began to roll along. After a block, Randall began to calm down ever so slightly. Still panting and afraid, he began to feel somewhat as though he would be safe as he was now on his way home, away from the dead things in the darkness he wasn't entirely certain he had actually seen was when the sudden and unexpectedly violent bumps and jostles came from the cab hitting what felt like tremendous potholes that his blood pressure shot up once again. Glancing out the back window, he saw that they were indeed traversing a veritable minefield of crumbling holes in the street, which seemed to him to be growing and sinking deeper as they passed over them. He had both walked and driven that street many times and knew full well where he was, but he had never, in all the crumbling city, seen something so destroyed as the street he had strolled down less than an hour before. A string of confused and hushed profanities escaped his lips, causing the cabbie to speak to him over his shoulder. Yeah, the city is falling apart, I tell you, he croaked. Don't worry, though. We're almost there. Randall didn't spare a glance back around as the cabbie spoke as his attention was fixated on what now appeared to be outright sinkholes, swallowing the most distant potholes that they had run over. The holes in the street were indeed expanding, and were now beginning to swallow up portions of the curb. Panic began setting in even deeper than before. A few moments later, the cab, with squealing brakes in clear need of service, stopped just outside of Randall's building. He scrambled out of his seat, not even thinking to pay, until he heard the croaking voice of the cabby call out, Hey, it'll be 8 dollars Stopping pal. in his tracks, he turned and hastily returned to the cab, leaning down and looking in through the open passenger window. As his hand shot into his pocket in search of his wallet, his eyes looked up and were struck by the sight of the aging and worn cabby's face, now vacant and seeming to deflate before him. His eyes had sunken deep into his skull, and his flesh began to sag upon it as though he was decomposing right there before him. Randall's own face contorted and dropped in horror, as from beneath the sagging and pallid visage of his driver, he saw what almost looked to be a smile beneath the eyeless sockets form up. In a voice that had now gone from a croak to an awful wheezing moan, the dead thing behind the wheel spoke. No, no words. Don't worry about him. Life is too short not to, not to take the free ride. No sooner had the final words escaped the collapsing face than did the smile broaden just a bit before the diminishing form of the man collapsed onto the seat, sinking further until nothing remained but a pile of foul, threadbare clothing. Aghast and confused at what he had just witnessed, Randall stepped slowly back, grappling with the vision of the decaying man who had just died and disappeared before him. As his steps brought him closer to the crumbling front stoop, a sinkhole opened up beneath the rear wheels of the taxi, sending its front end lurching upward as the car was swallowed up by the street. He felt a rumble and a cracking in the sidewalk below him and darted up the steps, fumbling with his keys before finally giving up and shouldering the rotted front door open. He dashed up the stairs, finding his foot sailing clean through one on the second flight, almost causing him to tumble back down. Regaining his balance, he rushed up to his door and once again threw his shoulder into it, shattering the hollow plywood into splinters which flew about his living room. The apartment was dark, and the lights refused to work. The pale orange glow of the street lamps flickered as they crept in through the windows. Going to one, He looked down into the street only to find the whole of it falling into one darkened sinkhole after another until there was nothing left within the curb and streetlights themselves began to sink as well. Lifting his gaze to the city horizon, he watched in horror as the skyline itself shifted and moved. Entire buildings, dozens of stories tall, listed and fell one by one and a tremendous rumbling filled his ears. As the lights began to go out all around the city And the whole of the world was plunged into darkness The terrifying realization that the world was ending set in Still partially and almost hopefully questioning if he was not merely going mad His knees suddenly felt weak And he shuffled backwards Coming to sit upon his bedside His eyes still fixed on the darkness and destruction Which was taking place out of his window It was then that the next shot came. Randall, said a woman's voice from beside him, it's time again to remember. His eyes whipped around to his side inconceivably fast, and as they did, his gaze was torn from a vision of horror and dread, to one of beauty and utter serenity. Her green eyes, though serious, were still warm and inviting. Could not explain how memory had arrived nor how or why he was so happy to see her but in that moment her face became his salvation memory memory what is going on he stammered terrified and desperate for answers you're remembering Randall it's almost upon you Just stay with me as she spoke she took his hands again and the two sat together, their eyes locked on the others. His breath began to slow then as a sense of calm rose over him. Alongside this rising calm, the light waned and gave way to darkness, with the last thing he could see being memory's beautiful green eyes. There they sat in the dark then, together. Soon the thunderous sound of the end of the world subsided. All the light was gone, and so too was the sound. As moments passed, time itself seemed to change, first stretching out in a way which caused seconds to span for minutes, and seemingly hours. Soon then, time vanished entirely, as did the feeling of the bed beneath him and the room around him. Following this, his very sense of self and being became diluted and then vanished. Though now beyond physicality entirely, something in him still felt her presence. Though neither had hands any longer to hold, they still sat with such clasped together. Without eyes to see, they still gazed at one another, and in that boundless, incorporeal moment that was itself a matter of forever and never at all, Randall found his memory. Randall remembered. It had always been in fact just this, darkness, silence, formlessness. Darkness was not merely around him, but was him, and was the darkness and the nothingness which seemed at all times existed behind and beneath everything. It was in that darkness that he first created the very sense of self, which led in time to a created sense of boredom and lonesomeness. It had been from his darkness that he had emerged, and from himself that the darkness had emerged, and feeling incomplete between those two as being one and the same, he desired light and company. This desire began then to create a self, separate from the dark, and then within the void which now simply surrounded him, there grew from his desire other things, beds upon which to lie and streets upon which to walk. Trees and buildings and sunrises and moonlit skies all unfolded themselves from his desire and imagination. Then after these came birds and mice and cattle and other things that walked and fed. These things which fed then soon became autonomous and inspired the creation of other life that thought and acted for itself. Life which could speak and which would fill his new world with tragedy and comedy and help him escape the lonesome darkness entirely. Once the life was brought into the new world of light and being and action and activity, there was but one final thing to do for the experience to be complete, and so he forgot and said goodbye to his memory, knowing that she would seek him out once again. For it was his memory which remained the final piece of his reality that he needed gone for his life to begin and begin again. Knowing that her presence would inevitably bring his world crashing down with the realization that it was only as real as he allowed it to be, they parted ways. Not once or twice, but countless times, in a cycle that was once again familiar to him and once again brought him a sense of despair. As he returned then to his formlessness and darkness, his memory spoke to him without words or voice separate from himself, but still within. We can begin again, however you may desire, she said from within the void. I will always need to return to you, and will always do such when the time is right. Why must there be a time at all, he responded, himself shapelessly from within the nothing. For you to ask that of yourself would mean you already know from whence the answer comes. You're the only source for any question and the only source for any answer. Begin again when and how you will. As always, I will find you once again. And once again, beginning and end will be one and the same. He thought of nothing then for a good long while. Then... Feeling the time was right, things began again. He began this time by forgetting. Randall, now taking the name of Sam, opened his eyes as the morning sun filled his bedroom. The light stung slightly as the knowledge of what he was became the knowledge of being Sam. Stretching and rubbing his eyes, Sam sat up in bed and looked out into the bright and perfect world ready to begin yet another day. From beside him, the murmur of a waking woman's voice told him that it was time to make some coffee. As she turned over, her emerald green eyes fluttered. With a deep and satisfied breath, she sat up beside him and smiled. Looking over to her, he smiled in kind and spoke. "'Good morning, memory.' What would you like to do today?
4: Well, listeners, it turns out that beneath some of the most beautiful visions, something sinister can lurk. Something with death at its core that can take much of your life from you and still leave you craving for more. Once we've heard our final message, we'll bring you exciting news about the Simply Scary Podcast and our affiliates, and how you can be a part of the Terror this Halloween.
3: Hello, one more time, folks. Now, before we go, I just wanted to let you know if you have a business, an event, project, book, film, or anything that you would like to have promoted in front of the Simply Scary Podcast audience, you can become a sponsor today. You can contact us on the simplyscarypodcast.com website. At the top of the page, click advertise and send us a message, and we will set up a free consultation. To find out the best way for us to make sure that your message is in front of our audience. Help support your favorite broadcast today. Become a sponsor of the Simply Scary Podcast. And now, for our final messages, here's GM Danielson.
4: Welcome back, dear friends. This is the part of the show for important information in the world of the Simply Scary podcast and our affiliates. First, if you are enjoying our broadcast, take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave a review with five stars. That will assure, and I do mean assure, we get this new podcast off to a greater start than already we have. Just search for Simply Scary on iTunes and find us at the top of the results. For this episode's randomly selected review and winner of a free membership at the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights site, we have this message from Cider Babe. Absolutely amazing! Recommended to everyone I know who loves scary stories. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to share that, Cider Babe. Please email us at contacts at simplyscarypodcast.com to verify your comment and claim your special gift from us here at the Simply Scary Podcast. Cider Babe's comment is a perfect example of what we need you to do. Share the scare, and spread the dark around the globe. We also want to remind you where your home is for the terror this Halloween. Join our friends from Chilling Tales for Dark Nights for the final round of Evil Idol you can help them choose the winner and enjoy live performances from the top competitors. Find out who receives the grand prize package and who will be the next star performer for their frighteningly unreal audio productions. Plus, enjoy unbelievably talented artists as showcased tonight, vying for the top spot, performing live and in the flesh. No, unfortunately, no scraps left for you zombies in our audience. Subscribe to their YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Chilling and join them there on Monday, October 31st at 9pm Central Standard Time to vote up or eliminate the final contestants. The choice is in your wicked thumb, but preferably one still attached to your body. I remember those days in Chilling Tales when they would end every video with that detached hand with the thumb up Hopefully, yours is not like that. Somehow, I don't think the contestants would fare very well in that situation. We would also like to thank you for your support and reiterate that it is incredibly important for our productions. Become a patron today and you can have access to all our episodes and much more, including access to the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights audio library. Think of it like one of those vampiric, dark, 30s noir film libraries you saw years and years ago. Except with audio, instead of paper books. Just go to simplyscarypodcast.com and click on the Patrons link at the top of the page. As a bonus, when you become a patron, we'll also provide some goodies never released to the general public, including isolated music tracks and short films for online viewing. Every subscription helps us. To scare you. Finally, if you are a horror author yourself with a story or book you'd like us to adapt, we have a plethora of voice actors standing by that can help to adapt your work into an audiobook at competitive rates. Don't hesitate to reach out to us through our social contact page on simplyscarypodcast.com or at contact@chillingtalesfordarknights.com. At We can provide you with a great opportunity to terrify new audiences. And if you are interested in sponsorship opportunities for your business or event during our show, click on the advertise link at the top of the page on simplyscarypodcast.com. Also, if you have a story you want us to feature on the show, visit simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash submit a story forward slash and we'll see if your story has what it takes To make our blood, and yours, run cold. Thank you for joining us for our broadcast. I'm your host, G.M. Danielson, and remember, listeners, that even if you bow down to the evil idol, that will not spare you from the power of its wrath. We will see you next time when we show you that there is nothing simple about being scared, unless... It is the Simply Scary Podcast.
3: This is executive producer Jesse Cornett. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com. There you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast. The Simply Scary Podcast is a production of Chilling Entertainment. The showcase is written by Jesse Cornett and Dustin Koski, and produced by Jesse Cornett. The host of the Simply Scary Podcast is GM Danielson. Original music during the show by Jesse Cornett. This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review comments or questions, email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information. While you're there, consider clicking on the patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show. Copyright Chilling Entertainment LLC 2016. Thanks for listening.